Let's turn to 1 Kings in chapter 7, which is on page 299. 299 in your church Bible. 1 Kings chapter 7. I'm not going to read the entirety of this chapter, but pick out two sections. We'll read from verses 13 to 22, and then from verse 40 to the end, which summarizes really a large part of the chapter. Verse 13, then, of 1 Kings chapter 7. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one eighteen cubits high, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of each. You may remember all you need to do is to add a half and you get it in feet. So it's eighteen plus nine will give you the feet, twenty-seven feet high. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars. Seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface which was next to the network and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. And then verse 40, Hurah made the labours, that's great areas, uh, great uh, water containers. He made the labours and the shovels and the bowls. So Huram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network, to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. The ten carts and ten labours on the carts, one sea and twelve oxen under the sea. The pots, the shovels and the bowls, all these articles which Hura made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of Jordan the king had made them cast in clay moulds between Sukkoth and Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because they were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. 
Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Once again we are faced with a mass of detail. And some of it is not very easy to visualise. It is largely about the temple and about the bronze furnishings in the temple, the work of this man, Huram, or Hiram. I'm going, to pronounce, I'm going to use the name Hiram because that is the one that is usually accepted, but that's not to be confused with the king of Tyre, who's also called Hiram. But Hiram is the man who was responsible for doing all this bronze work in the temple. The chapter includes, in the opening verses, verses 1 to 12, which we did not read, information about Solomon's other building projects, including his own house, his palace. The heart of the chapter, in the middle of this chapter, is the one that we began to read, the two bronze pillars, Jachin and Boaz, which were freestanding, which stood in front of the temple. And then the rest of the chapter is concerned with the bronze sea, a massive water container which held well over 10,000 gallons of water. And it was used for the, by the priests for washing. And then the smaller water containers and the carts which then were set on these bronze bulls and then all the other utensils for temple worship. And then the chapter ends with the section we just read, summarising all the work of Hiram, and then summarising all the work of Solomon. Solomon was the one, it seems, who was responsible for the gold, and Hiram was the man responsible for the bronze. What are we to make of it all? What are we to learn from it? Well, I will acknowledge publicly that I find considerable help from one commentator in particular, a man called Dale Ralph Davis, who has an exposition of one Kings called The Wisdom and the Folly. And the three things that we consider tonight are three things that he draws attention to, but I've changed the order, and I've also made some additions and further observations which he does not make. But I find him to be the most reliable of the expositors of this book of One Kings. The first thing that he draws attention to, and I want to draw your attention to in this chapter, is the priority given to the house of the Lord. The priority given to the temple. Just cast your eye over the chapter. In my Bible, at any rate, there is one column, more or less, on Solomon's palace and his other buildings, and then three on the temple. 
in terms of verses. There are 12 verses in chapter 7 on Solomon's palace and his other buildings and 39 on the temple and especially on Hiram's contribution to the furnishings. And if you look at the two chapters that are concerned with the plans of the project of the temple, chapter 6 and 7, then the percentage is even higher. The burden of concern, the priority is the temple, the house that Solomon is building for the name of the Lord. Now we've already noted that some commentators are reluctant to accept the record that is given to us. They seem suspicious of Solomon and his motives. And again, we find in the opening words of chapter 7 where Solomon takes 13 years to build his own house and then he finished all his house. We find there that some suggest Solomon's priorities were wrong. He spent twice as long building his own house as he did the temple of the Lord. He was more concerned then, they say, about his palace. More concerned about his own house. But there's nothing in the text that suggests that. There is no rebuke from the Lord. That no prophet comes to Solomon and chastens him because he is more concerned with his own palace. You may remember, many years on, the prophet Haggai came. In the days when some of the people returned after exile and they were doing precisely that. They were concerned with building their own paneled houses and the temple of the Lord was in ruins. And they received a very sharp rebuke from Haggai. Consider your ways, he says. Is this the way to proceed? But there was nothing of that. And when we turn to the opening chapters of 1 Kings, And we come to this climax in chapter 6 and 7 and then when the temple is dedicated the message that we get is this Solomon had purpose to build the temple. That was his priority. We got that message from chapter 5 verses 3 to 6. We'll not take time to read it again. But what is recorded in chapter 6 and 7 bears out the the temple, the house For the Lord is the priority. It's the priority of the writer. It's the priority of the Spirit of God. It was the priority of Solomon. It was the priority of God himself. Chapter 6 is concerned with the building. And chapter 7 is concerned with the interior furnishings. Bronze and gold articles. All these things were for the priests. Their washing of themselves, the washing and preparation of the sacrifices that were to make atonement for the sins of the priests and of the people, for the priestly service and worship of God. That is what the temple is for. It is for the worship of God. It is for the provision of atonement through animal sacrifices. This temple is the house for the Lord. This temple is the house for the name of the Lord. God's king is building God's house for God to dwell in. The amazing thing is that God is pleased to dwell among his people. 
He is not reduced in size. Solomon will tell us in 1 Kings. He's well aware that God cannot dwell, as it were, in a, in a house made with hands. That God is so great and God is so glorious, but he is pleased to dwell in order that his glory may be seen among the Israelites and among the nations of the world. It's a place where the Lord God who has redeemed his people out of Egypt, where the Lord God who has brought his people into Canaan and settled them and given them rest from all of their enemies, it is there that God is present and there that God is to be worshipped. The priority then is given to the house of the Lord, the house that Solomon is building. It is there, it is there that Israel goes to meet with and to worship their God. For it is there that those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices on the altar, there that the blood is shed on the Day of Atonement in the most holy place, symbolically taking away the sin of the nation, pointing forward to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross many hundreds of years later. We must remind ourselves, this house is not, does not stand for just any kind of worship. It is for the way of worship that is regulated and directed by God himself who dwells among his people. That is why when David drew up the plans for the temple and gave them to Solomon, we read in Chronicles that David was led by the Spirit of God. God, as it were, designed his own house in the same way that God said, this is how you are to worship me. He did not leave these things to human wisdom. He gave these plans. He gave the way of worship. He provided those sacrifices, typifying the death of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the New Covenant, to the New Testament, to our own age, in our New Covenant days, our worship is centred upon God and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Atonement is made for sin, no longer symbolically, but really, guilt is taken away. Sin is put away and we come as God's people, cleansed, pardoned, made or accounted righteous through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question by way of application. Is the worship of the living God the priority in your life? I don't mean just today, although I do mean today, but I mean in your entire life. Do you profess to be a Christian? Then is the worship of this one true living God your priority? It was Solomon's. We live in a world that is dominated by all kinds of things, by politics. The media news is largely made up of politics and various catastrophes and tragedies. You never hear about the worship of God in the media. It's sidelined, it's ignored. We live in a world where possessions and things 
and prosperity are deemed more important than the service and worship of God. People are taken up with new homes, the latest fashionable clothes, where you can go for a holiday where no one else has been before, the latest cars, the latest makeovers, in order to improve your home. And so many people invest in these things as though they were the priority. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in this world. And it can brainwash us. It doesn't just wash over our heads. It affects us. And we have to fight to maintain our spiritual priority, which is the worship and service of the living God. Solomon had to maintain that priority. He had to maintain that priority when the temple was being built. And he ought to maintain that priority once the temple had been built. It doesn't just happen. To maintain the priority of the worship of God is something you have to work for, strive for, aim for. Because there are so many other things to distract us. The men and women who know nothing of the living God and who spend their time in collecting things and possessions and spend all their money on these various things, they are impoverished. They are impoverished. They focus on themselves instead of upon God who made them. And the God who sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to save them from their sins. It's a tragedy. You look around you and you see sadness and you hear bitterness and sorrow because these things do not pay you back with the blessings of salvation. They are empty. They are vain. But the blessings of those who call upon the name of God, who love him, who serve him, who worship him, these are genuine, these are real, these are lasting. But they are given to those who maintain the fear of the Lord, the worship of the Lord. That is to be our priority. So I ask you, what is the most important thing in your life? Do I need to say to you, as Haggai did to his generation, consider your ways? Do you need to make a good, careful check on your life and your priorities? Your house, your possessions, or the church of Christ, the worship of God. Remember, we are in a very different position to the days of Solomon. Solomon was one king and the only king. There were a lot of priests, but the nation of Israel outnumbered all the priests. And only the priests could go into the temple. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And then, only once a year. Under the new covenant, Christ has made every believer kings and priests. 
Christ has loved us. Christ has washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's the language of someone who has been captivated by this priority. Realising what God in his kindness, what Christ in his grace and love has made us. And you want to give glory and you want to acknowledge the power and authority that belongs to God and to God alone and be consumed with that glory of God. And you cannot rest day nor night until God is being glorified here upon the earth. I would suggest that that is something of what kindled Solomon's heart and his motives. He had a priority for the house of the Lord. And let me urge you, let me encourage you, think way back. God will dwell among his people. And the church of Jesus Christ will go on worshipping this God forever and forever in heaven. All the other things in this world will have passed away. They will have gone. And it is only those who worship this God now who will worship him and take their place in that heavenly glory. That's why this is important. When God in his love saves you from your sins, when he turns you around and brings you to faith and to repentance, He makes you a king, he makes you a priest to serve him, to love him, to worship him, to be consumed with that priority that God will be glorified in the earth. And you will do your very utmost to be one who advances that glory. That's what salvation is about. So there is priority given to the house for the Lord. And then secondly, I want to draw attention to the prominence given to the workmanship of the house for the Lord. The prominence that is given to the workmanship for the house for the Lord. Verses 13 and 14 introduces us to this man Hiram from Tyre. He was from Tyre. Tyre lay to the northwest on the Mediterranean coast. But this man was a son of a widow from Naphtali, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and his father was from Tyre. Now the men of Tyre and the neighbouring country of Phoenicia, or that area of Phoenicia, Tyre, they were famous throughout the whole ancient Near Eastern world for being metal workers. Bronze, gold, silver, any metal, they were the people you went to if you wanted a top class job. And it is very clear from this passage and the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 13 that Hiram was no ordinary craftsman. He was a highly skilled master craftsman. And the Second Chronicles passage tells us that he was actually in the pay of the king of Tyre. He was his own craftsman. And it is this man whom Solomon brings then to Jerusalem in order to 
furnish the temple in bronze in particular. In fact, we are told in verse 14 that this man, this bronze worker, was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. Now when we read that, we ought to understand that, not simply in terms, well, those are his natural gifts and abilities. This is true, it is his natural gift and ability, but where do such gifts and abilities come from? They come from the Spirit of God. They come from the Spirit of God. You're different from somebody else. You have different gifts and abilities because of the work of the Spirit of God. This man had the gifts, the tools for the job. He was equipped by the Spirit. So Solomon did not employ any second-rate craftsman. He got hold of the best man who was available, who had been in the royal employment of the king of Tyre. And what he did was splendid work. A couple of Saturdays ago, I took the O'Haras to the Roman palace in Fishbourne, near Chichester. Some of you may have visited that Roman palace, the remains of it at least. And that palace contains a number of beautifully decorated mosaics on the floors. Every floor in that palace has got a different mosaic pattern laid out on it. It's a work of a very skilled craftsman. Great skill is involved in creating those patterns, the different colours, and making sure that each one has its own place. And you create a work of art on the floor. Nearby, also in the palace, they showed some crude mosaic Laws, clearly inferior in their workmanship. The, the stones, instead of being about the size of your fingernail, were, were big things like this and just almost sort of flung onto, the, onto the, the mortar. And they looked what they were, shabby and second rate. But when you looked at this temple and when you looked at the work that Hiram did, there was nothing shabby about it, there was nothing second rate about it. This was a house for the Lord and therefore anything shoddy and second rate would not be acceptable workmanship. I want to give you some idea of the workmanship that was involved, the fine details and the beauty of this work. It is difficult reading it in any English translation to capture the beauty of what Hiram created. For example, in verses 23 and 24 we read of the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round, its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. In other words, it was forty-five feet in circumference. It was huge. But it was going to hold well over ten thousand gallons of water, it needed to be huge. But then notice... Verse 24, below its brim were ornamental buds. I'm not quite sure what they were. They may have been gourds, something like that. Encircling it all around, ten to a cubit. Every foot and a half, there were ten of these things. All the way around the sea. And the ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. 
Uh, it just wasn't a plain piece of bronze. The whole thing was decorated all the way around the rim. And then this thing was actually held up by 12 bronze bulls. And you could recognise they were bulls. That's what it rested on. And then we read in verse 42. I'm just selecting out to give you examples of the workmanship. Verse 42. We read 400 pomegranates for the two networks. He's talking about the pillars and the capitals that are on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates decorating the two capitals on top of the pillars. And then, going back to verse 27, we read of the ten carts, the ten stands. These were smaller water containers, six foot square, four and a half feet high. Four wheels on each of them, all carefully cast in bronze. And then we read, with the basins on top of them rather, and then we read in verse 36 of the decorative work on each of these. On the plates of its flanges, on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions and palm trees, wherever there was a clear space on each, with wreaths all around. I'll just give you that as a kind of example. This is a work of art. Now you may say, so what? That kind of thing doesn't interest me very much. I go and look at a piece of art, or I go and look at a piece of sculpture, it doesn't do anything for me. Who cares about how many pomegranates, and ornamented buds, and cherubims, and lions, and palm trees? They don't exist now anyway, so why bother with them? Who cares really about them? Well, Hiram cared. Solomon cared. Dale Ralph Davis tells the story which illustrates the point I'm trying to make. And I'll use his story. The story of a workman who was working in the United States. He was building, involved in building a, piece, a place of worship and he was high up in the ceiling doing some ornate plaster work or something. And a tourist was many feet below on the ground watching them. Watching them do this detailed work, high up on the ceiling. The details could scarcely be seen from the floor. And the tourists cried out, why are you being so exact? No one can see the details you are making from this distance. The busy craftsman shot back with his answer, God can. And it's not only Hiram who cares. It's not only Solomon who cares, it's God who cares about this workmanship. This man is a steward. God has given this man wisdom, understanding and skill in working with bronze. And God is concerned with the outcome of this man's workmanship. God is concerned with artistic beauty. He doesn't want something shoddy and second rate. It was the same in the tent of meeting. When you read back in Exodus, the last part of Exodus, all the details, again it reflects the beauty. Because this God is holy. And there is beauty to be associated then with His holiness. 
This is the skill of a man who produces something which is pleasing to the eye and pleasing to God. Everything in the temple is the best. The materials are the best. Stone, cedars of Lebanon. Then the gold that covers all the walls. And then the bronze and gold furnishings. These are the best workmanship that is available in the ancient Near Eastern world. Why? Because this is a house that is a dwelling place for God. And God is glorious. And God is clothed with unimaginable splendor and holiness. And he deserves always the very best materials and the very best workmanship. Although it's not an exact parallel, you remember another prophet, Malachi. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8. People were coming and they were worshipping. They were coming to the temple to bring their sacrifices. And they were bringing the blind, the lame, the sick. And with a kind of holy sarcasm, Malachi rebukes their contempt for God and says, All right, you go and take that to your earthly governor and see what he thinks about the lame, the blind, and the sick. You come to worship God. God deserves the best. Honour Him. Honour Him. And that is the lesson then for us. Can we be shoddy? Can we give to God something back that is second rate? God gave Hiram gifts and abilities. God has given to you man of God, woman of God. God has given to you spiritual gifts, spiritual graces, spiritual abilities. He has turned you from your sins. He has clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. He is sanctifying you by His Spirit. He is making you pure. He is making you into the right shape and fitting you into His temple. You are a living stone in the temple of God hand carved if you will by God himself, by his spirit. And as something that is hand carved by the hand of God you are to offer to him the very best. The very best. He is not worthy of anything else but the best. Isn't that why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 12 as he thinks about all the salvation mercies that have been heaped upon the Roman Christians he says offer yourselves, offer your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. Give of your all. Give of your best. Hold back nothing. There is no place in the service and worship of God for being laid back, for being casual, for being flippant, for offering something that is second best. The beauty of the church of Jesus Christ is made up of men and women who are living stones, pure, holy, I say hand-cut, hand-carved by the hand of God. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus.
some of you here this evening are robbing God of his glory. In fact, we all have to say we are all robbing God of his glory. Because we turn to offer to him something that is second rate. We can be all fired up now by what we hear, but tomorrow, tomorrow is another day. There are other distractions. Our hearts can grow cool and dull and slow. Can we be bothered? You know what I'm talking about? Happens to me every week. I have to stir myself up and remind myself who I am and what grace has made me. But there are others of you who are robbing God of his glory because you are not in Christ. You're not in Christ. You're not willing to acknowledge him as your creator. You're not willing to acknowledge your own sinfulness before God. You're not willing to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only saviour of sinners. And you live unholy lives. You will not come to Christ. And it will not do for you to say, well I'll go back tomorrow and I'm going to try harder. I'll try and be more sincere and more genuine and do my best. You will end up totally frustrated. Driven to despair. Because you will never attain to that standard of holiness which only God can give to you. Only God by his spirit can make you a stone fit to go into that living temple. Only God can give you a new heart. Only God can give you faith and repentance. But you must come to Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins. And you must come to him now to be washed clean. And to be made fit to take your place in that temple of the living God. You cannot glorify God in your sinful, unconverted state. There is no place, no place, until you are washed clean by the blood of Christ. And I am here to tell you that the blood of Christ cleanses you if you will come. And put your trust in Jesus Christ. Cleanses you from your sins. And then you'll take your place in that temple. But then there is a third thing. And that is the proclamation of God's faithfulness and God's power by this house to the Lord. This temple... This house for the name of the Lord, it speaks. It has a testimony. It makes a proclamation about the Lord himself. It is, after all, a house for his name. A house that reveals something of the character of God himself. The two huge pillars that Hiram built of bronze, verses 15 to 22, they dominated the entrance to the temple. Now we've already pointed out that most Israelites would never be able to enter the temple. No one except the most of the high priest was able to enter into the most holy place. But no one 
standing even at a fair distance from the temple, could mistake these two huge bronze pillars that stood at the entrance to the temple. They were impressive in their dimensions. Cast in bronze, the actual pillars were 27 feet high. They were 18 feet in circumference. Now I've got fairly long arms, there's no way I would be able to put my arms all the way around this huge cast bronze pillar. It was three inches thick and hollow. And then on top of it, there were these decorative capitals, and they were another seven and a half feet high, and then they had, had all these beautiful, detailed craftsmanship. This was put then, two pillars, two freestanding pillars, right in front of the entrance to the house of the Lord. And we're told in verse 21, that when they were set up, the one on the right its name was Jachin, and then the one on the left was called Boaz. Now, when Israelites gave names to places, to people, they were saying something. That's why I say these pillars were proclaiming something. They were proclaiming something about God. The names given are like code words, full of meaning. Jachin proclaims the faithfulness of God. Because if you translate it, it means something like this. He, that is the Lord, will establish. Or possibly put into a desire, may he, that is the Lord, establish. It's about something that God is going to establish. And that word establish is a key word, signifying the faithfulness of God. I have here a list of references. I'm not going to refer you to all of them, but to give you some sample. They occur, this word established occurs in the key passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes those promises to David. He speaks about establishing David's throne, David's kingdom, and the house of David. It occurs again in the opening verses of 1 Kings in chapter 2, where Solomon and his throne is established. God does this. God makes these promises. I will establish. I will do. I will do. I will establish. In Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses after the Exodus anticipates God establishing his people and his sanctuary. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, God will order and establish with judgment and justice the throne and the kingdom of David. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. One of the key uses of this word establish concerns God and his faithfulness, what God will do. And here is this huge pillar then, standing up, declaring, proclaiming, God will establish. Here is God's faithfulness. Here is the reliability of the Lord whose house this is. And there it is staring you in the face in the form of this named pillar. And then Boaz. Boaz proclaims the power of God. It appears to mean 
something like this. In him, that is the Lord, in him is strength. Or, possibly, by him, that is by the Lord, he, that is the king, is mighty. Whatever it does, it symbolises strength, power, and not the power of the king, human power, but the power of God. So here you are, you are looking at these two pillars. They are named Jachin and Boaz. And if you understand the names, you are looking at something that symbolises the faithfulness and the power of God who dwells among his people. And that is a testimony given to all people. To the king, to the priests, to the Israelites, and to the nations who might come to see the glory and the splendour of this temple in Jerusalem. Anybody explaining them would be explaining then the significance of these names. You see, Solomon is learning, like his father David did before him, that he is totally dependent upon the promises and the power of God to perform those promises if he is to remain as king. And if his house, or David's house, if that house is to continue, it is the promises of God, it is the power of God. And this temple stands as a vivid proclamation telling them, this is the God who dwells in this house. He is a God of faithfulness to his promises. He's not a God who delivers empty words. He is the living God. The God of your father, David. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The God of Moses and Israel. And he is the God who has made his promises to you, Solomon, through his, your father, David. Solomon is conscious that it is God who has made him king. It is God who has established his throne. It is God's house for his name that Solomon is now building. Why? Because God is the God who is faithful. God is the God who is able to do what he says. We've drawn attention to the verses in 1 Kings 8 and verse 24 before. And next week we'll begin to look at that chapter. There Solomon, as he prays, describes God as the one who fulfills with his mouth what he spoke, so he fulfills with his hands what he spoke by his mouth. What God says, he will do. He will fulfill his promises and he will do them. And when Solomon then dedicates the temple, he is declaring, he is proclaiming what the pillars proclaim, God's faithfulness and God's power. Something that is fundamental to the character and the being of God. Something that is fundamental to our faith. Our faith in God. What we believe, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. If you believe in the God of the Bible, 
If you believe that God is the kind of God who fulfills with his mouth what he speaks with his hand, what he speaks by his mouth, that what God says he will do, if you believe that he is a God who speaks great promises that come ultimately to fulfilment in Jesus Christ, and these are not empty words, but words that must come and be fulfilled, then that is going to determine the kind of Christian man or woman that you are and the way that you live. It's going to affect your trust and your confidence in God. It's going to affect your stability. It's going to affect the way you regard the future. It's going to, it's going to affect the way that you pray. It's going to affect who you depend upon, your attitude to money and possessions and things. It's going to determine above all else the way in which you worship this God. For you know him. You understand something of his ways. Something of his character. And you are compelled to bow down before him and acknowledge who he is and what he is like. The kind of God that he is. You begin to realise what I'm saying. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. If someone says, I don't believe in God. If someone says, like they do in the Psalms, you know, there is no God, or there, God doesn't hear, God doesn't see, it doesn't matter how I live. You see? You see the immediate effect? God doesn't see. So then it doesn't matter how I live, it doesn't matter what I do. And you know the tendency that is commented on in the psalm, in Psalm 50. There is a tendency in all of us to recreate God in our own likeness. To make a God who is very much like us, just an extension of us. But that is not the true God, because you end up worshipping yourself, and you live accordingly. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And this is what Solomon is saying to us. This is what we believe about God. He is a God who has promised. And he is a God who has power to fulfill all of those promises. And he blazons it in front of this temple. It becomes an integral part of his prayer. Now do you believe in God's faithfulness? And in God's power. That faithfulness and that power that has come to expression now in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all these promises, all these promises are fulfilled ultimately in Him. When you see Jesus Christ crucified, and then you see Him raised from the dead on the third day, and you see him ascending into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the fulfillment of the promises of God. That is God working out his faithful promises. That is God performing what he would do. And what he said he would do. And therefore our trust and our confidence is at stake. We put our trust and our confidence in this God who is faithful and able to perform what he says. Is your trust in this God and in his Son, Jesus Christ? He has declared him to be the Son of God with power by raising him from the dead. Is your faith in that divine Saviour 
that he saves? Is your confidence in this God and all his divine resources in the face of all our own felt weaknesses and helplessness, a hostile world, hell and Satan line up against us and line up against the church. The church of Christ is vulnerable. But who is our God? He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who can preserve us and keep us and bring us to glory with his son Jesus Christ. How can I say that? Because he has promised it over and over and over again. And I believe those promises. Do you? Do you really believe those promises? It's going to make a tremendous difference then to the way you live if you believe and trust in this God. The church is very vulnerable. She's tossed about like a boat in a storm. It sometimes looks as if the church has been beached like the Napoli off the coast of Devon, almost shipwrecked. But the church is no temporary building. The church isn't built on some shaky foundations. The church of Jesus Christ is nothing less but the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. The house of the living God. And the foundations are the faithfulness and the power of God. This is our God. How does it survive? How does the church survive? How does a Christian live his or her life in this hostile world? It's because of God who has promised and because God is able to perform what he has promised you and what he has promised his people. And he's invested all that faithfulness and all that power in his son, Jesus Christ. So when you cast yourself upon him to save you, there is never any doubt about his power and his willingness and his ability to save you from your sins and to bring you home to glory with himself. That's our God. That's the assurance of your salvation. In the end, it depends upon the God who is able to do these things. The God who promises you see, you may say, well, I, I'm sure God has the ability to do these things. But you see, you need to latch on to the promises and to believe those promises. The promises that God makes, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That is the underlying promise. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is to have God as your God and to be one of the people of God. Eternal life is to have God dwelling in the midst of his people. And his people know him and love him and serve him. That's what the new Jerusalem will be like. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. What you have here in Solomon's day is a precursor. It's a forerunner of that heavenly Jerusalem. My friends, when we get to that heavenly Jerusalem, 
these lips? What will they proclaim? The faithfulness and the power of God to perform all that he has said. They will proclaim Christ because there God's faithfulness and his power is supremely invested. Begin that praise now. Pray that God will give us strong faith, firm faith, a holy, bold confidence in him. That we will stand firm in the midst of an uncertain world because God is our God and he will not forsake us because he has promised to keep us. Amen. We thank you, our God, for the hope and confidence that your word gives to us. We thank you that you are a faithful God, a God of mighty power who is able to perform all that he has promised. Lord, we can look back in your word and see again and again the truth of these things. We can see how those promises have come to fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ and will yet be fulfilled in him, in the new Jerusalem. Lord, keep us, though we are weak and frail and vulnerable, keep us, that we may be more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Give us grace then to maintain our priorities, to maintain our love for the honour and glory of our God in this world. How can we, Lord, by ourselves? But Lord, your grace is sufficient for us, for your word is true. Blessed then be your name forever and forever. Amen. Amen.